0: Well, um, for those of you who don't know me, as Wayne uh, mentioned, uh, my name is Jeff Thompson, and I tried to get Blake to introduce me as some sort of pastor, but he wouldn't do that. I'm not the pastor of good looks and and charm, but so I'm just just a regular guy, um, just a regular congregant like many of you, and also like many of you, I'm just a guy who loves God. I enjoy studying his word. I enjoy kind of really peeling back the scripture, and it, it always amazes me at how God just continues to and continuously reveals himself to us through this book. And so uh, you know, I'm really for, for that, I'm really thankful for Blake for you know, inviting me to come and teach this class and help prepare some of the lessons from time to time. So we've been spending some time in the Old Testament lately. We uh, have spent about a month or so covering the book of Daniel. And then last week, Blake kind of gave us an overview of the Old Testament. And hopefully that has kind of removed... Some of the barriers that we tend to put up when we approach the Old Testament, and we remember that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament and the same God that we have in our lives each and every day, and so hopefully some of those obstacles that we tend to put up have been removed, and so we can take that into our scripture as we continue to study the old testament we 're going to be covering a chap- uh, a chapter in the book of Second Samuel today, and then Next week we're going to have a kind of a fall kickoff and what Blake's going to spend a uh, couple of weeks uh, covering the story of Balaam and then we're going to get into Ruth after that. So we've got a lot of Old Testament so we're happy to be comfortable in this, in this text now and so we'll just kind of get in. Um, today we're going to be covering a passage in the book of Second Samuel so if you have your Bibles you might turn to Second Samuel chapter 24, that's where we're going to be uh, picking up our reading. So, just to kind of cover uh, a little bit of a backdrop of where we are in time, uh, we're in what we would typically refer to as the period of kings. And this basically covers the latter half of the Old Testament. And we call it this period of kings because each one of the individual eras during this particular time is uh, characterized and it's defined by the particular king who happened to be in charge at the time. Now, occasionally... We get a king who comes along who's faithful to God, who you know, leads people back to God, and who is obedient to the Lord. But most of the time, that's not what we see. Most of the time, what we see is wickedness. We see rebellion. We see apostasy. We see disobedience to the law. We see idolatry. And with that, we ultimately see God's punishment. You know, sin is going to be punished. But what we also see is that no matter how wicked the people become, No matter how rebellious they are, although there's punishment, when the people finally repented, when they turned their hearts back to God, when they called upon the Lord again, God is quick to meet them back in their rebellion and meets them, showing them abounding love and mercy and forgiveness. And we're going to see that same pattern emerge in our story today. So today we're going to be diving into an event that happened during the reign of King David. And King David, he was one of the good kings In fact, he was probably the good king. And uh, he was the second king of Israel right after Saul. And we're all at least probably somewhat familiar with David. You know, David has, has, you know, been in our in our teachings before and you know certain things may come to mind when we think of david we might think of david and think of you know simply of david and goliath and you know we're all familiar with that sunday school story we might think of david and we might think of military power and how he was this you know great conquering king who was very successful with the favor of the lord and expanding the kingdom of israel and we might think of David and we might think of the Psalms. You know, he was the writer of many of the Psalms, so we might think of him and think of beautiful poetry and all the songs that he wrote to and about God. But today I want us to think of David in a different way. I want us to think of David in a way that he was characterized before he was even anointed king of Israel. Before David was king, Saul was king. And Saul was a, he was a pretty wicked guy. And Samuel, the prophet at the time, told Saul, he said, he said, Saul, I'm going to replace you with a new king. And the Lord is going to replace you with a new king. And he's going to put in place a king who is a man after God's own heart. And, of course, he was referring to David as being this man after God's own heart. And so today during our passage, I want us to look at David and view David through the lens of being this man after God's own heart. But uh, we all know David wasn't perfect. He certainly had his sins uh, and unfortunately for David, there's there's one black mark on his resume that we're all probably pretty familiar with. He, he has this one notorious sin that he just can't live up. Any know anybody know what his most notorious, famous sin is? Bathsheba. Absolutely, David and Bathsheba. We love we love that story. We're all familiar with the story. You know, he's he's sitting on his palace balcony. He, he's sitting on his pal- palace balcony and he sees her bathing on the roof. He likes what he sees, he invites her up for a drink, and he ends up sleeping with her, and she becomes pregnant, and that's a problem because, you know, she's married, and not only is she married, but she's married to Uriah, who's a commander in, in, in his military, so he invites Uriah to come back in hopes that he would sleep with her, and, and she would think the baby is his, but he refuses to do that, so he does the next best thing, and he sends him out to the front lines and has him killed. So, you know, it's real soap opera type stuff, something you might pick out of Netflix today. But you know, outside of this one point, this one low point, we tend to look at David as one of God's golden boys, and, and he is for the most part, but that wasn't his only sin. And today we're going to look into another one of those few instances that are documented where David's just going to seem to miss the mark. He's going to sin. He's going to do something foolish. He's just going to miss the mark just by a little bit, but we're also going to be able to hopefully sympathize with him in this sin. This, is, this sin is going to be something that we, we can relate to. It's familiar to us. And we're going to watch David as this man after God's own heart emerges from this situation. We're going to see him pick himself up, and we're going to see him turn himself back directly to God. So let's get into this text a little bit. And So this scripture, it's going to pick up at a point uh, that's likely later in David's reign. So this is kind of after he's seen a lot of military successes. It's after the event with Bathsheba. You know, so he's he spent a lot of time knowing the Lord and walking with the Lord, but we're still going to see him do something pretty foolish. So we'll just pick up in verse 1. It says this. It says, Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So again, the anger of the Lord burns against Israel, and hopefully this isn't too much of an obstacle. I mean, don't you just love it when you open your Bible and the first thing that you read is, again, the anger of the Lord burns against Israel. We don't need to be afraid of something like that. We just need to understand why. Well, we don't exactly know what Israel's specific sin was in this instance, but it doesn't take too much speculation on our part to simply assume that Israel has gone back into her typical ways of rebellion or idolatry or you pick it. You know, Israel is not being faithful to God. And then it says that God incited David against them. And as we're going to read David's going to do something here that the Lord is not going to approve of. So before we even get past this verse 1, we've got some, somewhat of an enigma that we have to deal with because it sounds like God's going to cause David to sin, and we know that can't be the case. God doesn't cause us to sin or tempt us. In fact, James 1, verse 13 says that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So we know that God doesn't tempt us or cause us to do evil, But he does at times allow Satan or some other evil moral agent to more or less influence the situation and kind of just let evil kind of work its way out. And it's all done within God's sovereign control of the universe and all done in accordance with his will. And we've seen this in other parts of the, of the scripture. We saw this in, in the book of Job, for instance. You know, Satan came before, you know, Job, and God kind of allowed him to inflict Job with a number of calamities. But it was, this was all done within the sovereign control of God. And so we're talking about the same thing here. And in fact, in the book of Chronicles, the same story of David and the census is accounted for in the book of Chronicles. But in that passage, it reads that Satan stood before Israel and incited David to harm them by taking the census. So again, we're talking about the same thing here. God's going to allow Satan here to influence David and tempt him to sin. And as we're going to see, God's going to use this event to punish the sin of Israel He's going to punish the sin of David, but he's also going to use this event to refine David. So if we move on in the text, it says, So the king David said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and enroll the fighting men, so that I may know how many there are. So in other words, David's ordering his folks to go out and take a census. Count Count my military men. So... What, what's, we've got to ask ourselves, what, what's wrong with taking a census? Is, is it wrong? Did he put a, a question about citizenship on this on the census? <laughs> well, that wasn't the case. You know, taking a census in and of itself was not a sin. In fact, you know, God has prescribed uh, ways that you're supposed to, like a protocol that you're supposed to follow when you take a census in the Old Testament. But David doesn't necessarily follow that protocol here. He he, uh, he, he's got his own separate motives. You know, you would typically take a census to assess the military strength of a, of a nation or maybe to enlist troops or to pre- prepare a country for, for battle, but that's not the case here. You know, David's kingdom, they're at a time of peace. That doesn't make sense here. What, so what was David's motive for taking this census? Well, the, the scripture here doesn't explicitly tell us, but if we read around this text enough, we can infer that David's sin is a sin of pride. See, David is allowing his pride and his self sufficiency to turn his attention away from God. You know, David's seen a lot of military and victory, military successes and expansion of his kingdom, and he's becoming prideful of the size of his empire. See, he, he's we're beginning to get a sense that he's crediting his success to himself, and he's relying on himself and his self sufficiency uh, as his security instead of the Lord. And we've all been in David's shoes. I mean, we've, we've all, you know, had, you know, this thing come, come into play in our own lives. You know, we've had successes in our own lives or in our own careers. And we begin to pat ourselves on the back. We, uh, you know, we begin to attribute that success to our own effort. And we begin to, you know, place our security in that success. And, you know, we may, we may place our security in our jobs or our careers or our bank accounts or maybe our families or our spouses And doing that, you know, all of those things are good things. All of those things are really good things, but they are not ultimate things. And when we do that, we lose sight of the fact that everything is coming from God and everything belongs to God. But David here, he's putting his faith in the size of his army instead of simply relying on God to provide whatever necessary troops that he may need whenever he may need them. And that reminds me of the story of Gideon. And Gideon was uh, a military leader and a judge and a prophet about 200 years before David. And at, at this, the, the story of Gideon goes like this. He, he's about to take his troops into battle. And he's, uh, he's lined up his troops, and he has 32,000 troops ready to go into battle. And the Lord looks down on this situation and says, Gideon, you've got way too many troops. You're going to go into battle, and you're going to be victorious, but people are going to see that and see, and they're going to attribute your success to the size of your military, and they're not going to see that it's me working through you and giving you this victory. So God says to Gideon, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to line up all of your troops, all 32,000 of them, and any of your troops that are shaking in fear, any of them who are trembling, shaking in their boots, I want you to send those folks home, and you're going to go into battle with whoever's left over. So Gideon does exactly what the Lord commands. He lines up all of his troops, and of the 32,000 troops, 22,000 are fearful and trembling. So he sends those, two, the, those troops home, and he's left with 10,000 troops. So Gideon's got to say, well, you know, that wasn't ideal, but you know, I've still got 10,000 troops. I, you know, I still feel pretty confident about this. So he's about to take his troops into battle with his 10,000, and the Lord looks down on the situation and says, nope, Gideon, you've still got too many troops. I, I, we're going to weed some more of them out. I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to take all of your troops down to the river, And I want you to have them take a drink. And any of your troops that get down on all fours and lap up the water like a dog, I want you to send those folks home. But any of the troops who just kind of stoop down and scoop up the the water with their hand and drink it out of their hand, those are the troops that you're going to go into battle with. So Gideon does exactly what the Lord commands. He takes his troops down to the river. And apparently a bunch of Gideon's troops are a bunch of dog drinkers because <laughs> in 9,700 of the troops end up you know, getting down on all fours and lapping up the water. So Gideon has to send 9,700 home, and he's left with 300 troops, 300 troops from the initial 32,000 to go into battle with. And so if I'm Gideon in that situation, I want to go back into that first lineup and be one of those fearful and trembling because I want to go home too. But Gideon doesn't do that. Gideon takes his troops into battle, and inevitably he is victorious. And I bring that up because you can't look at that situation in any way and say, see that that was anything other than God and God's you know, providing for Gideon, God's victory in that situation. And the, the exact same thing is true with David, but David has lost sight of that. David is beginning to attribute his military success to himself. So he's going to take this census. So Picking up in verse three, it says, but Joab replied. Joab is one of his, his, mil- his top military commanders. He's been with David for a long time. It says, but Joab replied to the king, may the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over and may the eyes of my Lord the king see it. But why does my Lord the king want to do such a thing? So here we get some pretty sound advice from Joab. You know, he's a trusted advisor. He knows David. He knows that David's motives are all wrong, but David's not going to heed his advice. He's going to move forward with this census. So it says, the king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders, so they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. So they're going to take this census, and we're going to skip ahead to verse 8 here. It says, after they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab reported the number of fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. So I'm going to pause right here because we've got this man after God's own heart who we're not all that impressed with it up until this point. But, you know, the census has been done. David has his number, you know, he, and it, it sounds like it would be, a, it'd be a, an acceptable number. He's got 1.3 million troops ready to go. But we're going to see David pivot right here. This is a pivotal moment for David, and we're going to see this man after God's own heart emerge immediately. So it says in verse 10, it says, David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant, for I have done a very foolish thing. Has anybody else ever done something that you knew was wrong, and you did it anyway, and you immediately regretted it? Well, that's David here. And, but I want you to pay close attention to what David does when he has this pivotal moment, when he has this epiphany. He does three things to, to, when he finds out what exactly he does. The first thing he does is he acknowledges the weight of his sin. He he says he's conscience-stricken, and depending on what translation you may have, it may say that he's grief-stricken, or his heart is aching, or his his mind is troubled. He's got this deep inner troubling of his soul because he knows the separation that sin has caused. He's got this chasm between him and God, so he is conscience-stricken. The second thing that David does is he confesses the sin. He, he he simply confesses it. He doesn't make excuses. He simply says that I've sinned. And he's not telling God anything that God doesn't already know. You know, God, God already knows that he, that he's sinned, but it's important that David agree with him on that fact. And the third thing that he does is he appeals to the mercy of God. He knows that the Father is one that he can go to. He, he's walked long enough with the Lord to know that he's a Lord of mercy, uh, love and mercy and forgiveness and so he's just appealing to the mercy of God he says Lord I beg you take away the guilt of your servant he knows that there's no better place to run than into the arms of his father and so I'm a father myself and I've got two young kids and and my I've got two daughters my daughters are nine and seven years old and they're the absolute light of my life I mean these, these girls are sweet sweet girls and they've got me wrapped around their little finger and you know I love these girls more than life itself and unfortunately you know like David, you know, they're, they're not perfect girls. They, they sin from time to time. They mess up. They fall short. And you know what they do? It's uncanny. Every time they sin, they respond exactly like David did. They come to me with their little arms folded, and they say, Father, I'm in deep distress. I've sinned. Can you please help me with my guilt and shame? No, okay. Maybe they don't. Okay. Well, I'll, tell, I'll give you an example of how they actually responded. One. It, it, this, is a, this is a typical response. But a couple of weeks ago, I see my daughter doing something that, of course, is not something that she should be doing and she sees that I catch her doing this and she you know we lock the second she sees that I caught her doing something that she was not supposed to be doing we lock eyes for like a beat for like three seconds she's like frozen staring at me in the staring contest and then what does she do she turns around she runs into her room she slams the door she jumps on her bed and buries her face into her pillow and starts to cry and so this is a pretty typical response to, to to her mess ups but and you know she's nine years old and we're kind of working with her on character. Haven't quite made it to the David caliber yet, but we're working with her on it. And you got to keep in mind that she's nine years old. But if you think about it, a lot of the times our responses to our mess ups, our, our sins aren't all that different from the way my daughter responded right there. You know, how do we typically respond to our mess ups? Or at least how do we have the tendency to respond to our mess ups? You know, we may become paralyzed. We may have that deer-in-the-headlights moment where we freeze and we don't know what to do. We may run. We may, we may hide. We may withdraw. We may flee. We may become depressed. We may cry. We may uh, throw ourselves a little pity party. We, we can do other things that you know, our more mature personalities allow us to do. We may deny it. We may blame others. We may, uh, we may rationalize it even. But David reacts quite a bit differently here. You know, see, here he realizes the guilt he has and he runs directly into the arms of God. But that wasn't always the case with David. We know that. With Bathsheba, that certainly wasn't the case. With Bathsheba, what did he do? Well, he tried to bury the problem. You know, she becomes pregnant. Oh, well, you know what? I'll just have her, her husband come and we'll pretend the baby's his. When that didn't work out, well, he dug himself a little deeper. He'd just send him out and have him killed. I'll take her for my own wife. But not now, not now. Now we've got a David who's much more seasoned. We've got a David who's walked with the Lord a long time, and he knows that there's no more safe, no more worthy place than to run than into the arms of his father. He knows his father is one of love, mercy, and forgiveness. And as a father, myself, you know, I would love nothing more than for my daughter, when she messes up, for her to come to me and just wrap her arms around my waist and look up at me and say, Dad, I'm sorry. I messed up. I punched my sister. I knew knew it was wrong. I did it anyway. I know there's going to be punishment, but... I know you, I trust you, and I love you. So I'm just asking you, can you help me work this out? And so our God in heaven is asking the exact same thing from us. That's the same response that he wants from us. And David here, in this true man after God, his own heart moment, he does exactly that. So David, he still sinned, and sin has to be dealt with. So let's read on. We're going to find out what the consequences for David's actions are because it gets a little interesting from here. In verse 11, it says, Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come to Gad, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So God is telling David, you're going to pick your own punishment. You can go out in the backyard and pick out your switch and bring it back to me. But so so gad went to david and said to him shall there come on you 3 years of famine in your land or 3 months of fleeing your enemies while they pursue you or 3 days of plague in your land now then think it over and decide how i should answer the one who sent me so i'm not going to have a talk at our tables about this but in my mind this has got to be the absolute worst would you rather scenario that i can imagine contemplating i mean if i'm if i'm david i'm thinking okay i've got 3 years of famine and starvation and drought or i could have 3 months of running away from people who are trying to kill me or i could have 3 days of death destruction and basically the worst types of physical affliction imaginable and i'd be inclined to ask god god can i have a fourth option maybe maybe 3 minutes of a toothache or something but david doesn't do that D- david responds in a way that shows how he knows the lord he, he, it shows he has this intimate knowledge of god and he's this man after god's own heart he says I am in deep distress let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great but do not let me fall into human hands so David's choice here it shows that he has this wisdom and this reverence to God and he understands who God is and what his love is for us he says let us fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercy is great and to clarify David's selecting his his punishment he's selecting the punishment of the 3 days of plague and I think it's interesting that of the punishment he chooses. He, he chooses a punishment that he is every bit as exposed to as even the poorest of the other Israelites. If he, had, if he had chosen one of the other two punishments, he would have had some means of protection or insulation, but not here. If he had chosen the, the three years of famine, then he, he's king of Israel. He would have, he would have had storehouses built up of, of food and grain, so he could have weathered that storm. But if, if he had chosen the three months of fleeing his enemies, he just counted his military. He knows he's got 1.3 million troops at the ready. He could, have, he could have looked at that situation and said, you know what, I think we could do this. But he doesn't. He picks the one punishment where he is every bit as exposed, and he, is, he has no protection whatsoever from this. And this, the second thing I think is interesting about this punishment that that david has chosen is this gives him the quickest restoration he doesn't have to wait three months or three years to get to be restored he he gets it in three days and we don't get the impression that the punishment is any less severe in fact it's probably you know more severe there's probably more casualties because this punishment is truncated but but david picks this punishment that gives him the fastest reconciliation to god in three days he can be reconciled with god And then the third thing I think is interesting about this punishment that he chooses and probably the most important is this punishment is the closest to God. It's the most direct from God. See, he knows that he would be in the hands of God's mercy. He's walked with God a long time. He knows that God is a God of mercy. So he just simply throws himself at the mercy of the one he trusts the most. So the Lord's going to act out this this punishment. It said, the Lord sent a plague on Israel. From that morning until the end of time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. So the Lord's sweeping through Israel. He's made it from Dan to Beersheba, and 70,000 people have already lost their lives. And that might seem harsh and unfair, you know, for this one sin of pride, but, you know, we've got to go back to the beginning of this passage. The Lord's anger is burning against Israel. He's not just punishing David here. He's punishing Israel. And then in verse 16, it says, When the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting people, Enough, withdraw your hand. And then it says, The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So here we see God's mercy enter enter into the picture. And So we, we should ask ourselves, why? why? Why is God being merciful here? You know, we know God's a God of mercy, but why, what's the significance of withholding this final blow to Jerusalem? And also that last statement, what's the significance of where they are, this, this threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite? Well, this location of the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite was located on what's called, what's known as Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah, David's later, he's going to purchase this property. And this is later going to be where, Solomon, his son, is going to build the temple. So this is going to be the location where people would come and they were going to offer their sacrifices for the atonement of their sins. But this Mount Moriah is also has, has historical significance for David because back in the book of Genesis, Mount Moriah was the same place that Abraham took his son Isaac to be sacrificed. And if we indulge that thought for just one moment this beautiful picture of these similarities and these parallels between Abraham and David begins to unfold. So I want you to picture in your mind, I want you to picture the angel of the Lord sweeping across Israel and he gets to Jerusalem and he's about to just sweep across Jerusalem and and wipe Jerusalem off the map. But at the last moment, the Lord stops and says, stop, enough, put down your hand. So I want you to keep that image in your mind. And then I want you to also Bring into your mind the image of Abraham with his son Isaac right there on the altar, bound on the altar, and Abraham has his knife raised against his son, and at the very last moment, the Lord says, Stop, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. See, in both these cases, God's covenant appeared to be jeopardized. It was threatened without his intervening mercy. In Abraham's case, the covenant promise was that he was going to have many descendants. And here Abraham was, he was about to destroy the very seed from which all of his descendants was going to come from. And in David's case, the covenant promise was that he was going to have this everlasting kingdom from his descendants. And here here the angel of the Lord was about to wipe his kingdom off the face of the earth. So why did God intervene here? Verse 17 says this, it says, When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned, I the shepherd have done wrong, These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. So like Abraham did with Isaac, you know, Abraham was willing to, he was going to withhold nothing from the Lord. He was willing to give up everything to the Lord. But like Abraham, God intervened once David's heart was right. Once he saw that David was willing to give up everything. He says, let your hand fall against me. See, David showed that he he showed this real true spirit of a shepherd, willing to lay his life down for for the salvation of his subjects and although God doesn't take him up on this offer he doesn't accept this offer we see this man after God's own heart he sets this pattern for his ultimate descendant Jesus who would come into the picture and who would lay his life down for us and so the Lord steps in at this last moment of mercy you know he doesn't change his mind but he changes his way in the case of Abraham, you know, he saw that Abraham was willing to give up everything, and the Lord provided another way. He provided the, the trapped ram for the sacrifice. And in the case of David, he also saw that David was willing to give up everything, and so, he, again, God provides another way. He, he directed the course of events to this threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So now we're going to finish this, this judgment, this sacrifice, and this atonement that was abruptly stopped by the Lord's mercy. And so in verse 18, it says, On that day Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. So David, he's being instructed to go to this place where this punishment from God was just halted, and he's going to build this altar to the Lord. So a sacrifice is still needed, but God's going to provide this other way to do it. And so it says, When Aranah looked up and saw the king and his officials coming towards him, He went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the lord that the plague on my people may be stopped. Arana said to David, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are my oxen for the burnt offering. Here are the threshing sledges and the ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty Arana gives all this to the king. Arana also said to him, may the lord your god accept you. And so we've got a little bit of a sidebar here, but I, th- I think that we we should at least mention it because here we have Arana, who we don't know whole, a whole lot about. We just know that he's a Jebusite, and since he owns this land in David's kingdom, it's you know, he's pro- possibly even a leader of, or a ruler of the Jebusites. And the, the Jebusites, the, who they were, they, they were this Canaanite tribe who God's people, the Israelites, essentially had to go through in order to inherit their promised land. So you know, the the, the Jebusites. You might think of them as an obstacle. They, they 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 would be an enemy of God, but that's not what we see here. You know, we see someone who's very humble, and we see someone who's very hospitable hospitable to the king. He says, "Take it all. Take the take the land for free. Take my oxen and use that for your sacrifice. Take my equipment. Take my, my threshing sledges. Take my uh, yoke and use that wood burn. Use that wood to burn your sacrifice. And on top of that, may the Lord find you acceptable." And you know, just a few verses ago, we saw you know our man after God's own heart tallying up his own kingdom. But here, here we have Arana, the, this this enemy of God, off, you know, offering everything to David in such a humble and hospitable way, you know. And we see we see instances like this throughout Scripture, where you have this unlikely candidate, you know, step in and show this real God honoring example. But the king replied to Arana, "No, I insist on paying you for it." For I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. So I want us to pay real close attention to David's response here. He says, I will not offer, or I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that have cost me nothing. You know, there is probably a whole different message that we could go into on this statement alone. Since, since David, he understands this chasm between him and God. He understands the weight of his sin. He knows that the atonement is costly. And so, in the book, in the book of Chronicles, when we read the same passage, it says that David paid the full price for the land. He didn't take it for free. He didn't. Get a lower price or a bargain price, but he paid the full price, and that should remind all of us of someone else who paid the full price for the atonement of our sins. So David goes on and he builds this altar and he completes this atonement through this burnt offering, and then he restores peace with God through the fellowship offering. and at the end of this story we see God and see, we see God in his mercy, he withholds this ultimate punishment. he withholds what's deserved. And he provides another way. And this has become a familiar pattern in, in, in Scripture. You know, with Abraham, once Abraham's heart was ready, he provided another way. You know, he provided that ram in the thicket. When, with, with David, once David's heart was ready, he provided another way. He provided this alternative way of sacrificing. He, he provided this altar for him to make this atonement through. And with us, he does the exact same thing. You know, once our hearts are ready, once we know that our salva- salvation lies in Jesus alone, and once our hearts are pointed towards him, he provides us with another way. he provides us with himself and so for us, God doesn't give us three punishments to choose from. He provided us with the fourth option he provided us with this with the only option, and the cost for that has already been paid for so just kind of bring this story to a culmination and close this out i you know, I would just invite us to be like David to to know and trust God like David, to, to be men after God's own heart like David you know, in, in our story. And when we mess up, and we all are going to mess up repeatedly, I would just encourage us to respond like David did, to, to know the weight of our sins, to be grief-stricken over them, to, to really internalize them, and, and know, you know the chasm and the separation that it creates, to view each one of our sins as a nail that's piercing Christ on the cross. And I would invite us to also confess our sins, to not cower or withdraw or hide or or be defensive or blame others, but simply running to the Lord in our weakness and our failures and not running away from him. God already knows what our sins are, but it's important for us to be on the same page. It's important for us to agree with God on that fact. And then third, I would just encourage us to appeal to God's mercy. If this story reveals anything to us, is that our God is a God of mercy. You know, David's heart for God is such that he knows that there's no safer or no more worthy place to run than into the arms of his Lord. And when we confess and when we repent, we're met with that exact same love and that same mercy and that same forgiveness that we see throughout the Old Testament when we repent. You know, through God's mercy, you know, he's provided us with another way. He's provided us with the way through Jesus. And so if we put our trust in him, Each one of our sins, each one of our nails is forgiven and forgotten just as soon as we place it before the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for the gift of your word and all the ways that you reveal yourself to us through it. Father, you showed us today that you are a God of love and mercy and forgiveness, and we thank you for meeting us in our imperfections with that same love, mercy, and forgiveness that you showed to David Lord, help us to be men after your own heart like David. Help us to respond to our sin like David did by fully understanding the separation that it creates, honestly confessing it, and placing ourselves into your loving arms. Lord, we are so thankful for the, for the ultimate sacrifice that you made through your son Jesus, and we know that, that we need to do nothing more, we, you know, that all of our sins are immediately forgiven once they are placed at the, in the, into the arms of, of your loving son. Help us to rest in your sovereign control of our lives and know that you love us even when we fail to glorify you. We thank you, God, for this group of men and for the opportunity to study your word together. And as iron sharpens iron, Lord, may we be voices of encouragement into each other's lives. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.